Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher power, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For, for, for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending com, continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You may be seated. Well, good morning and greetings in the name of Jesus. <clears throat> As was mentioned, I was given the assignment of Christians in civil government. But as I began studying that subject or looking into the scriptures and seeing what God tells us about government, civil government, I kept coming back to this thing of being citizens of heaven. And that's what I've entitled the message this morning. And the first, the first part of the message, we're going to look at, at us as being citizens of heaven and look at what it, is, what, it, what it means to be heavenly citizens. I believe it's important if we want to understand our, our role on this earth as God's people, I think it's first of all important to understand God's kingdom and I believe it's important to, to know whether or not we are part of God's kingdom. And actually, are we actually citizens of heaven? Probably most of us here have, have traveled to, to other countries, whether it's halfway around the world or whether it's somewhere like Canada or Mexico. Probably, probably most of us have, have traveled to a country where we've needed to to cross from one country into the next. And, and that, that border crossing is very, it's a very distinct place. You, you know when you're no longer at home, as we might say. Many times there are security guards, there are custom officials. Uh, we have to make sure we have the right documents. We, most times we need our passports, and they need to be current, they need to be up-to-date. And many times they ask, the, the officials there will ask questions about, you know, what, what our intent is for, for coming to their country and how long we intend to stay there. These are things probably most of us are familiar with. As we think of, of, of the kingdom of God, of God's kingdom as being, 
being a country or being, as we think of being citizens of heaven, you know, I believe God's kingdom is also very real, but it's, it's also quite different than, you know, taking that step across the line into Canada or into Mexico. It's definitely a step and it's definitely a different kingdom, but there's no physical guardhouse or, or border station that we, that we pass through. And we don't necessarily have a physical passport that needs to get stamped. But at the same time, it's a very real kingdom. And it's a kingdom that I believe existed before the earth was even here. It's a kingdom that existed in eternity past and will continue into all of eternity in the future. So then we might say, well then, if this kingdom is so dominant, or if it, was, if it always was and it's always going to be, then why the, why the tension, why the friction? But I believe it's because of man's sin. It's because of the fall of man. And ever since, ever since man sinned and lost that connection with God, I believe man has been trying to fix and restore God's kingdom or that relationship, man has been trying to do that on, on their own. And I believe that's at times where we get the, the conflict. But we as Christians believe that God's heavenly kingdom has been brought to the earth now by His Son, Jesus. And we as His people, we as His followers, are the citizens and subjects of that kingdom. We are asked in God's word not to be part of the political and, and economical kingdoms of this world, but we are asked, we are called to be different. We are called to be part of His kingdom. And I believe as God's people, we are called to make this kingdom visible on this earth. As I said, it's not a specific geographic area. It's not, a, not that somebody can say, okay, I'm going to go to this kingdom that's ruled by God and they get in a plane and fly halfway around the world. It doesn't work that way. But it's a kingdom that I believe we as His people are called to make visible wherever we are. And I believe it's important that there's a clear distinction between citizens of heaven or citizens of the kingdoms of this world. In the Lord's Prayer in, in Matthew chapter 6, it when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he, he, he gave them the, the example there that we call the Lord's Prayer. And he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I think it's, it's, it's Jesus, it's God's desire for his kingdom to be, to be present, to be alive, to be flourishing on this earth at this time. As I mentioned, there are only two kingdoms. It's God's kingdom and it's the kingdom of this world. So we will be part of one or the other. Galatians 1 verse 4 says, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. I'm just going to turn to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be turning to quite a number of references this morning. Titus chapter 2 just want to read verses 12, 13, and 14. 
I'm sorry, that's Timothy. Titus 2, 12, 13, and 14. It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So from, from these verses, we, we can kind of understand that as, as citizens of heaven, as people of God, we're, we're going to be a little different. We should be different. It should be something that people can notice, that people can see. And not to bring any glory to ourselves, but it's because of, of our King. It's because of who we live for. It's because of whose we are. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. And that word translated there just simply means to be moved from one place to another. From one distinct place to another. So we're taken from, from the kingdom or from the power of darkness and, and through the power of Jesus we can be moved into His kingdom. And in doing so, we have, we have in essence crossed the border. And since we are now part of that kingdom, and yet at the same time we are still here on this earth, I believe that puts us in enemy territory. Or at least it should. Probably too many times it doesn't feel enough that way. But I believe if we are truly following Christ, when we make that decision to become His follower, being here on this earth should now, should now, should now put us in, in enemy territory. One question that I'd like us to consider as we go throughout the message here this morning is, it's a question that I came across while I was studying this, and it, it has really really challenged me. The question is simply, what if Jesus actually meant what He said? What if Jesus actually meant what He said? And that's referring to the Jesus' teachings in the New Testament. And we'll come back to that question a little later. So as I mentioned, as I mentioned God's kingdom always was. But I believe there was a time when man was unable to see it. There was a time when probably all of us were unable to see it. Man is born into a natural, into this earth, this sinful realm. That's, that's what we're born into. We're born with the nature of Adam. Romans 3 verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God has promised a new covenant We no longer live we no longer live under the old covenant. We no longer there's no longer animal sacrifices to cover sin. There's no longer that law that becomes a burden. But Jesus has when Jesus came to this earth, he died and he was he rose again, he ascended into heaven. He taught us about the new birth and he said we must be born again. 
He promised his people a new heart. He promised his people a new mind. He told us that his spirit, that he would give his spirit to work in his people, and he would write his laws in their hearts. He gave this promise all the way back in Ezekiel. I just want to turn there and read, read several verses from Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and verse 27. It says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And then also in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. I believe just another promise that Jesus' kingdom, God's kingdom will last forever. And there will come a time when everybody will know that he is king. But God, through through Jesus, through the work of salvation, the work on the cross, has made it possible for us to be born again. And this second, this second birth, this being born again, then we are born into the spiritual world. We can become spiritually alive. We are, we are changed. We are brought into God's kingdom. And this new nature is, is, only, is only because of the work of God. John chapter 3, verse 3 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is, this is when Nicodemus came to Jesus. Jesus told him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I believe that too is a reason, is a reason why there's, is a reason why the conflict at times there's people around us that are not born again. They, they cannot see this kingdom of God. I believe they're still on their own trying to maybe become right with God or trying to be good enough or trying to convince themselves that what they have is enough. But he tells, he tells Nicodemus here that until you're born again, you, you cannot see that kingdom of God. You cannot understand what it is. So I believe it's important that we that we realize that we of ourselves do not have what it takes. But when we become born again, we can then see and understand, at least to an extent on this earth, how God's kingdom, how God's kingdom works. Just also a few verses from John chapter 1 on, on being born again and on this, this new birth. John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13. It says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So this second, this second birth is, is being born of God. It's being born into God's, into God's kingdom. 2 Peter 1, verse 4, "...whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." And then Mark 1, verse 15, "...the time is fulfilled." And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So I believe the question for each of us is, have we been born into God's kingdom? Have you been born into God's kingdom? Are you living within God's kingdom this morning? And if so, I believe probably most of us, all of us would answer, yes, we are part of God's kingdom. And if we are, are we then willing to believe that Jesus, that Jesus meant every word that He spoke, every word that is recorded in the New Testament, that Jesus spoke, all His teachings, are we willing to believe them? Are we willing to accept them? I came across a writing by a man named Soren Kierkegaard, and I just want to read few paragraphs of what he of what he said he says the matter is simple the bible is easy to understand but we christians are scheming swindlers we pre- we pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand we are obliged to act accordingly take any word in the new testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. But we say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How will I ever get on in this world? He goes on to say, Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. End of, end of quote. I believe his point here is, sometimes we study the Bible so hard, we try to make it fit. Or we come, we come to studying the Bible with our own perspective. We try to make it fit what we already believe. But his challenge here is just to take it, just get alone with the Bible, get alone with the New Testament, and take it for exactly what it says. And when we do that, when we do that, I believe Jesus' teachings are pretty clear. In essence, Jesus' teachings can be wrapped up in two words. And those two words are, follow me. So then the other question is, can a person be a follower of Christ without actually following what Christ did? I believe the hardest part of this is that following Jesus leads to the cross. Jesus told His disciples in the New Testament, He said, If you do not take up the cross and follow Me, ye cannot be My disciples. So where the the command, the order to follow Jesus may be simple, 
but it's not always easy, and I think we understand that. We live in a fallen world, and it's not always easy to completely die to self, to completely give up my desires and follow Jesus. And yet, that is what Jesus requires of His disciples, of His followers, of the subjects in His kingdom. And we have many beautiful promises of how God will be there for us, how He will help us through this. It's not that we become part of this kingdom and we're left on our own. Romans 8, verse 35 through 39 says, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?' Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. After Napoleon, the Emperor Napoleon was defeated, he was exiled to an island off the coast of Africa. And this is a statement he made while he was in exile. He said, I know many men, and Jesus is not a mere man. There is no comparison between Jesus and all other men. Alexander the Great, Caesar, and myself founded great empires, but we rested everything upon our force. Jesus founded his empire on love. At this very hour, there are millions of people willing to die for him. This was from a man that this was, from a, this, this, this was written by a defeated emperor, a man that was at one point had a lot of power, had a lot of people under him. But when he was stripped of that power, he realized that seeing Jesus or watching the way Jesus was leading his people was quite different than any kingdom on this earth. These millions of people that are willing to die for Jesus are willing to do so without, without lifting so much, as a, so much as a finger in self-defense. They're willing to do so without causing harm to anybody else. You know, there's, there's many people that are willing to fight for their country. But in doing so, they, they cause harm upon other people. But Jesus' followers are quite different. They're willing to die for the cause of Christ and for his empire that is founded on love. So maybe you're wondering by now, what does this have to do with us as Christians and, and our dealings with civil government? But I think it's important to understand that if we are part of God's kingdom, and if we believe that Jesus meant exactly what he said, in the Bible, if we believe that the Bible is, is God's word, God's word to us, and something for us to pattern or to follow in our lives, I believe it's important to, to be pretty settled in our minds that, that everything that's in the Bible, everything that, 
that we're taught throughout the New Testament is, is pretty important and needs to be followed. So let's look now a little bit at what we're told in the Bible is the, is the civil government's duty. Uh, the Dave read for us here in, in Romans chapter 13. And it tells us that, that God ordains, God sets up these, these governments. It tells us that He sets them up not to be a terror to good works, but to the evil. They're set up as, as ministers of God to execute wrath on those that do evil. And I think we would probably all agree that in, in the times we live in, in the world we live in, with all the evil and the wickedness, even, even the, we can see a lot of corruption even in the, in the governments that are set up throughout the world, but there is still a sense in which they do maintain a law, they do maintain law and order. 1 Timothy 1 verse 8 and 9 says, But we know the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for, the, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers. So we might say, well, we don't really, we don't really fall into any of those categories, which I believe is true and it should be. But there are still many other laws that I believe are important for us to to abide by and to follow. There are many there are many local laws. There are yeah, lots of different township laws and building codes and things like that that I believe are important for us to follow. There are traffic laws. There are speed limits. Those are probably some of the ones that that we are, uh, yeah, maybe run into a little bit more than any of the others, but I believe it's important that as, as citizens of this heavenly kingdom that we respect the laws of our civil government. And it's, it's been a, a challenge to me to consider some of the history behind or some of the rulers that were in place while some of these, some of these things were written. When Paul gave some of these these instructions, I believe Nero was Nero was the emperor, and he was probably one of the probably one of the emperors that caused the most suffering and persecution for the Christians. And yet, during that time, Paul tells the followers of, or the people of God's kingdom to to respect. He asks them to pray for them. He doesn't tell them to to start all kinds of you know, political movements or, or uh, marches and protests against, against this, this wickedness, but he tells them to respect, but yet ultimately obey God. And I, I find it interesting as we, look at, as we look at Israel's history, and when they, when they ask God for a king... In, in Judges 8, verse 22, after Gideon's victory there, they, the Israelites, the children of Israel, wanted Gideon to become their king. 
But Gideon told them that, Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. <coughs> and I think that's, I think that was very wise of Gideon. And yet as we look at Israel's history, we realize that they were not happy with, they were not ultimately happy with Gideon's answer. They continued asking God for a king. And God finally did, God finally did honor their request and give them a king. And God told Samuel when he asked Samuel to anoint them a king, he told Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Sorry, I was struggling with my voice a little the last couple days. The kingdom of God, as I mentioned, has a special place on this earth. But God still to this day also sets up earthly governments and has given us earthly, there are still earthly kingdoms and governments in place. But I find it interesting that (coughs) when God set up, when God allowed Israel to have a king, it was given to them more as a rebuke than as a blessing. God wanted to, God wanted to continue to be Israel's king, and yet they rejected him. Several verses in Hosea. Hosea chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. It says, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges of whom thou sayest, give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. I believe it gives some insight on on God's displeasure of Israel wanting a king and Israel rejecting him of being their king. Daniel 4 verse 17 says, The matter is by the decree of the watchers, and by the demand of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. Just just uh, verses again that I believe make it clear that God is in control of even civil governments. God says in his, in his anger gave Israel a king. <coughs> Excuse me. The king in <coughs> The king in Daniel's time understood that it is God that sets up the kingdoms.
And the prophets spoke of a time when the way of God would be restored. Several verses in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning verse 2 through verse 5. It says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, just another promise of, of of the coming Messiah, the coming King, the promise of Jesus coming. As this king. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, And peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. And to to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And then we have the fulfillment of that promise in uh, listed in the in the Gospels in Matthew and Mark of Jesus coming as that king. I believe it's then in that context of Jesus coming as king, Jesus showing his disciples his kingdom and making a way for us to be born again, to be part of that kingdom. It is then in that context that Jesus gives us the teachings in the New Testament. And I believe we need to allow these teachings, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount and all the other teachings in the New Testament, we need to allow this to be what, what fills us. We need to allow this to be what consumes us. I believe this is what should drive us, this working for our King, this working for our Heavenly King. 
I believe someday Jesus will return and rule as, as supreme ruler. But I believe it, at this time, Jesus' kingdom... Jesus' kingdom on the earth is represented by His church. Jesus brought in the new covenant to to reestablish God's desire and His design for humanity. I believe it's His desire that, that all of us, it's His desire for you, it's His desire for me to, to be a part of that kingdom and to live out what His original design was for humanity, to bring glory and honor to Him as the Creator. And as we are part of that kingdom, as we are living in that kingdom, we are called to be the salt and the light in this world. We are called to preach the gospel. We are called to pray for the civil government that is over us. And in Romans 13, verses 6 and 7, it says we're to, we're to pay tribute, which I believe is our taxes. We're to render all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. It says we're to fear them. We're to honor them. But I've not been able to find in any of Jesus excuse me, in any of Jesus' teachings that he is asking us to take up political sides or to get involved in these earthly kingdoms in any way. You know, as we think about traveling into another country, as we think about as we think about passing through passing across the border and having our passports stamped. As we are visiting in that country, and I believe that's what God is asking us to do on this earth, He tells us we are pilgrims and strangers. We are just passing through. We are just here as visitors. We are part of His kingdom, but we are here as visitors. And as we think about that here on this earth, we say we, we're, we're Americans. We live here in the U.S., so that makes us Americans. As we travel to let's just say Canada or any other country, we don't take part in we don't take part in their political affairs. We don't take part in their in their voting, in their justice system, in holding offices there. Because we're not part of that country. We are not citizens there. And I believe that's, I believe that's, I think it's important that we as Christians see ourselves that, as that here on this earth. We're just passing through. We are not, we are not part of these kingdoms. <clears throat> but at the same time, I think it's also important that we're not anti-government, anti-American, that we're just always against all those things. As it says here in Romans 13, we're to honor those that God has set over us. We're to fear them. I believe we're to respect. So I just want us to consider again the question, what if Jesus actually meant every word that he said? 
Does Jesus mean every word that he spoke in the New Testament? And the other writers that were inspired of God, do we really believe that what they wrote is true? And can we actually claim to be followers of Jesus if we don't actually follow what he said and did? So as we come to a close here, I'd like us to think about the church as being being the embassy for heaven. And as we as we look at the way the political system is set up, many countries have embassies within other countries where they have ambassadors that represent their home country. And I think if we if we look at our if we see ourselves as citizens of heaven, but we're here on this earth as, you know, as part of the embassy, and we, are, we look at ourselves as ambassadors, and Paul tells us that in, in 2 Corinthians, he tells us in 2 Corinthians that we are ambassadors for Christ, and I believe as we, as we see ourselves as ambassadors, we see ourselves as pilgrims and strangers here on this earth, I think it should make it pretty clear how involved we should be in civil government and what our responsibility is to them. Yes, I believe we fall under their jurisdiction, we fall under their their laws, their rules, and yet we're not to become a part of it. 2 Corinthians 5 Verses 18 through 20. I just want to read those verses in closing yet. It says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Shall we kneel for prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son Jesus for his teaching while he was here on this earth. I just thank you for the wonderful privilege of being able to be part of your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, you would just continue to give us wisdom and direction as we endeavor to, as we endeavor to follow you and to follow the teachings of your word. I just pray a blessing upon the congregation here at Weavertown, God. I pray you would bless them as they go from here this week, as they interact with those around them. I pray this church could be a salt, could be a light, and a witness for you. I pray, Lord, that through our light and testimony, we could inspire others to, to search you and to know more about you. I just thank you again for your love and your power to us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.